0: The following sermon is brought to you by Cornerstone Baptist Church. For more information on our teaching and preaching ministry, visit us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. Welcome back. Good to see you. Uh, Looking forward to getting into the book of Revelation tonight. Revelation chapter 3, if you'll turn there in your Bible. I gave a little plug uh, for this text uh, this morning uh, worship service um, with the intention of uh, hopefully tonight helping you uh, some with this key uh, sort of fundamental understanding of our eschatology. So I hope this uh, sermon will be helpful to you tonight. The, the Church of Philadelphia, which is the subject of our uh, uh, sermon this evening and our consideration, uh, the Church of Philadelphia was being persecuted um, by the Jews. We see that in verse 9. And the Lord refers to them as the synagogue of Satan, those who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. And the question comes up in our eschatology, one of the reasons why I wanted to um, help with this tonight uh, and sort of to use this text as a way to do that, is uh, really with eschatology is the issue of Israel. What do we do with Israel? How are we to understand the relationship between Israel and the church? Uh, And even in our, especially in, not even, but especially in our eschatology, how are we to look back? Uh, If you remember this morning, Pastor Dale, in particular, during the Sunday school class, was uh, looking back on those Old Testament prophecies, and in particular, how Matthew, for example, interprets Hosea eleven one with "Out of Egypt I've called my son." You know, so those um, New Testament authors then looking back on Old Testament texts and how do they? Uh, interpret those texts. It's not a reinterpretation of those texts, it's an actual interpretation. It's what those texts were intended to point to. Um, we see the New Testament authors handling those in a very specific way. And when we look at how the New Testament authors handle Old Testament texts like that, we get an understanding of how we are to look at those prophecies, uh, how we are to see the nation of Israel. Um, where to see how those prophecies are fulfilled in eschatology, it becomes very, very important. And if you can lock down uh, in your understanding who Israel is, who true Israel is, and true Israel's relationship to those Old Testament prophecies and how they're going to be fulfilled, if you can lock that down, then it is going to really, really help you as we get into chapters four, five, six, seven, working through the book of Revelation. Apart from the typology that we see in those Old Testament um, historical events and prophecies, apart from the biblical theology that we were talking about this morning in Sunday school, you're going to miss everything to do with eschatology. It's really not possible, I think, to come to a right interpretation or right understanding of eschatology apart from Biblical theology, or apart from a good understanding of typology. Once you have those things, though, uh, locked down and you begin to see things that way, then the pieces fall into place. And I think um, as we work through the book of Revelation, it's going to make a lot of sense to you. So hang in there with me tonight. We're going to put our thinking caps on. We're going to walk through several texts. Um, We're going to um, look at how, in particular, now the Lord, in addressing the church at Philadelphia, looks back. Uh, into the Old Testament gospel of Isaiah. (laughs) There's several allusions, several packed into this small text, several allusions to Isaiah that become critically important for how we understand things going forward. We're going to look at those texts tonight, I pray. In the course of doing that, we're going to pin some of those things down for you and make this a little more clear, okay? So uh, the title of our sermon this evening, An Open Door, this is part two. We're looking at uh, this text, Revelation chapter three, verses seven through 13, and the Lord's address to the church at Philadelphia. This is part two of what I believe was going to be three, three sermons on this text. Uh, next week, I want to invite you back because we're going to be covering another critical aspect of uh, eschatology, in particular the judgment, uh, next week. So I want you to uh, have that under your belt as well. So tonight, Revelation chapter three, verses seven through 13, let's read our text together and then we'll dig in. Revelation chapter three, verses seven through 13. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, these things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word and have not denied my name. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of God, amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I'm so grateful for these addresses to the churches and for your Uh, gracious, merciful, and patient words, uh, not merely or only to these churches in Asia Minor there, Lord, but also to us. Uh, We know, Lord, that we have many ways and areas in which we need to grow and mature, and you are kind, you are patient, you show great compassion toward us, Lord. You've been very gracious, very merciful with us, and continue, Lord, in grace to grow us, and to mature us and to help us in our understanding and to cause us to grow in faithfulness and to mature in love. And we're just very grateful, Lord, for how you, uh, not distant or aloof from your churches, but you walk in the midst of the lampstands, loving your church, nurturing your church, um, present with your church by your spirit. Um, to help her and to sustain her and to preserve her. So we're very grateful to you, Lord. We love you. And we're we're grateful for these addresses, Lord, because they strengthen us. Help us, uh, Lord, to see uh, in these addresses, in particular now as we consider this address to the Church of Philadelphia, uh, to see our own need for you and our own need of your spirit, our own need for perseverance, our own need for your strength when we are weak. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name, amen. An open door, part two, Revelation chapter seven, or three, verses seven through 13. Now, last time we were together on a Sunday evening, we began our consideration of the Lord's address to the church at Philadelphia, Revelation chapter three, verses seven to 13. Uh, and in this original city of brotherly love, far from Pennsylvania, there was a small church that loved the Lord. The Lord refers to her as having little strength, Uh, Probably an indication of her size in the midst of that uh, city of Philadelphia. But the believers in Philadelphia were devoted to the Lord with all of their strength. All of their strength. They loved the Lord and they determined to hold fast to his name. And it's to this small but beloved church in Philadelphia that the Lord now directs his address. Verse 7. And to the angel of the church at Philadelphia write... These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key to David, a reference to Isaiah 22, he who opens and no one shuts, shuts and no one opens. And as much as that uh, mediating angel, so to speak, uh, seems for a moment to demonstrate uh, an unbroken connection between heavenly and earthly realms, temporal and spiritual realities, uh, the concerns of our Lord and the concerns of our church, nothing, nothing communicates the awesome wonder of the transcendent God condescending in gracious eminence more than the incarnate son who is head over all things to the church, more than the one who is holy and true, who has the key of David, right? It's just that transcendence now seen as imminent in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Using terms descriptive of Yahweh, Jesus Christ describes himself as holy and true, and yet he is the one who has the key of David. He's the one who opens and shuts the door, the householder, so to speak, the one of whom Isaiah prophesied, the child who was born, the son who was given, the suffering servant who took on flesh, the government upon his shoulder, is the Lord Jesus Christ. And through the Lord's direct quote there, chapter uh, three, verse seven His direct quote of Isaiah chapter 22, we looked at last week the the typological significance of Eliakim and Shebna. Eliakim, a faint, and albeit sinful, fallen, human representation of the steward of the house, the one who has the key, the government upon his shoulder, and that faint picture should point us in hope. It's not Eliakim we're waiting for. Amen? We're waiting for the Lord Jesus Christ. And that typological figure of Eliakim is meant, intended in history, to point us forward to the great householder, the Lord Jesus Christ, and his everlasting kingdom. It should point us forward in hope, longing, (laughs) longing to see the perfect rule of Jesus Christ in splendor. The Lord Jesus Christ is the only one worthy to hold the key, right? Eliakim is not that one. Incidentally, with that now, and talking about that last week, typology... Biblical theology becomes critically important to understanding our eschatology. What are these pictures? What are these illustrations? What are they pointing us to? All of that we hope to get into through this text tonight. Now in our last sermon together, we got as far as the Lord's commendation of this church in verse eight, where the Lord says, I know your works. See, I've set before you an open door. No one can shut it for you have a little strength, have kept my word and have not denied my name. In faith, certainly by the power of God's spirit, this small, weak church refused to bend to the spirit of the age. The church refused to compromise. Little strength and yet steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. They've not denied him. They've not denied his words before men. And so he will not deny them before his father who is in heaven. And where this world shuts their doors against God's people where the Jews would presume to shut the door of the kingdom to God's true Israel, Jesus, who is the Christ, the householder who has the key of David, sets before them an open door to the kingdom, an open door to the new Jerusalem. Now, like any faithful church, the church at Philadelphia suffered. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, It's obvious from the context, though, that Philadelphia, much like the church, the persecuted church at Smyrna, the church of Philadelphia suffered at the hands of the Jews. First century Jews often treated Christians mercilessly, uh, as we've seen before, as we've looked at in prior texts. They presume to be true worshipers of God, and they are not. Why are they not true worshipers of God? because they have rejected the Lord's Christ. They've rejected Jesus Christ, the the only mediator between God and men. They've rejected their Messiah. They presume to shut the door of the kingdom of God to those who worship Jesus Christ. They would say that they were idolaters. When in fact, they themselves are the idolaters, they've rejected their Messiah. Okay, And just like the, the envious mob that crucified the Lord Jesus Christ, they would often stir up from town to town to town. You see them following the apostle Paul uh, through the book of Acts. They would stir up Roman authorities to attack Christians, often sending Christians to their deaths by turning them in. Despite horrendous treatment at the hands of the Jews, this little weak church, little strength in Philadelphia, has kept his word and has not denied his name. It's in this context then, it's in this context that the Lord, if you look at our text, the Lord promises to vindicate his judgment in the eyes of his enemies. Look at verse 9. Indeed, the Lord says, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie, Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. We can ask the question in verse nine, when does this take place? Well, in context, the Lord mentions this relative to the coming day of judgment and his soon return. Look at verse 10. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. In other words, the day is coming when the Lord will make all his enemies his footstool revelation uh, Romans sixteen twenty The God of peace will soon crush Satan under our feet. That day is coming, and I want you to see uh, this is in reference to the fulfillment this reference in verse nine in particular is a reference to the fulfillment of a promise that God has made to his people. And it's a promise that the Gentiles, all the nations of the earth, will come and bow down before Israel and Israel's God in the last days. It's a prophecy that the nations will come and bow down before Israel and Israel's God. Now David referenced this promise in Psalm 86. Listen to this, Psalm 86 verse 8 David says, "Among the gods there is none like you, O Lord, nor are there any works like your works. All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name, for you are great and do wondrous things; you alone are God." So there's this fulfillment taking place or this promise that we're going to see fulfilled a promise of the nations coming and bowing down before Israel and Israel's God. Now, I want you to turn back with me to Isaiah 45, and let's unpack this promise, unpack this prophecy. Isaiah 45. And most prevalently in this text are the allusions to the Old Testament gospel of Isaiah. The Lord frequently in this text alludes to or makes reference to Isaiah And it's really critical in looking back at these texts, in particular, uh, the texts in Isaiah, to see then how those passages are fulfilled. If you understand why the the Lord is uh, alluding or making reference to Isaiah, and then you understand how those texts in Isaiah come to fulfillment, you're gonna go a long way to understanding your eschatology, okay? Isaiah chapter 45, uh, look at verse 12. The Lord here speaks in context in the context of Cyrus the king, Cyrus the Great, and Cyrus's release of Jewish exiles from their captivity. Cyrus is going to release the exiles. And incidentally, God names Cyrus here by name. He mentions him by name a hundred years before Cyrus would even exist. He uses um, Cyrus essentially to open double doors, verse one, so that gates will not be shut. God says in verse 4, I named you, though you have not known me. God named him when he didn't exist. I am the Lord, and there is no other, there is no God besides me. Now, when we look at texts like this, and we see God's just, um, I don't know any other way to describe it, his crushing sovereignty over all of human history. God foreordaining, decreeing all Things whatsoever that come to pass, we're to look at that and we're to marvel, right? We're to marvel. That's our God, omnipotent, omniscient, omnisapient, our God. There is no other God. There is none like him. There is no God besides him. We are to worship at that. Look at verse 12 though with me. Look at verse 12. God says, verse 12, I have made the earth And created man on it. I, my hands stretched out the heavens and all their host I have commanded. I have raised him up in righteousness. I will direct all his ways. He shall build my city and let my exiles go free. Not for price nor reward, says the Lord of hosts. Now, this is, a, again, a prophecy of Cyrus. Cyrus is going to free the exiles, those that have been taken captive to Babylon. Now, you've got to see this. I want you to see the fulfillment of it. Uh, keep a ribbon in Isaiah 45 and flip to Ezra chapter 1. Ezra 1. I'm going to flip to a few places tonight. I know that Ezra is in my Bible. Ezra chapter one. Okay, and I want you to see the fulfillment of this. Look at verse one. So God now in Isaiah 45, in the context of Cyrus, God is prophesying the release of the captives. And then we see this worked out, Ezra chapter one, when Ezra comes back with the captives to Israel. Verse one. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, and again, this is 100 years later from Isaiah's prophecy back in Isaiah 45, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. Jeremiah had prophesied the captives would be released in 70 years. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing saying, verse 2, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth, the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is among you of all his people? May his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is God, which is in Jerusalem. And whoever is left in any place where he dwells, listen, let the men of his place help him with silver, with gold, with goods and livestock... Besides the free will offerings for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. So, what do we have here? We have captives who are in exile, and we have a new Exodus. A new Exodus takes place. When you read those um, descriptions in verse 4, they go out with silver and gold and with goods and livestock. Does that remind you of anything? Reminds you of the Exodus out of Egypt, doesn't it? They went out in haste and they went out with plunder. <laughs> Reminds us of Exodus pagan king here, releasing the people from their exile in Egypt, so to speak, to go and to worship their God, and they go out with riches, with the wealth of the nations. Uh, They go out with plunder. Back in Isaiah 45 then, back in Isaiah 45, that's our context, the Israelites are going to be released from exile. You could say the, the Israelites are going to be set free from Egypt, released from their captivity... They're going to be released by the hand of this pagan king like Pharaoh, this Cyrus, who just like Pharaoh, just like Egypt, will be judged for coming against God's people. And they're going to come out with the plunder, the riches of the nations. Verse 14, verse 14. Thus says the Lord, the labor of Egypt. Interesting, right? The labor of Egypt, the merchandise of Cush, And of the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come over to you, and they shall be yours. They shall walk behind you, they shall come over in chains, and they shall bow down to you. Recognize that from Revelation 7, or Revelation 3, rather, verse 7, verse 9? I'll get it right. They shall bow down to you. They will make supplication to you, saying, surely God is in you, and there is no other, there is no other God. The riches of the Gentiles will be theirs. They will come and bow down before you, Revelation 3, 9. Verse 15, truly you are God who hide yourself, O God of Israel, the Savior. They shall all be ashamed and also disgraced, all of them. They shall go in confusion together who are makers of idols. But Israel shall be saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. Now this prophecy in Isaiah, obviously an immediate reference to Cyrus and their release from captivity, but this this is speaking of an everlasting salvation. You shall not be ashamed or disgraced forever and ever. For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who has established it, who did not create it in vain, who formed it to be inhabited, he says, I am the Lord, there is no other. I have not spoken in secret in a dark place of the earth. I did not say to the seed of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak righteousness. I declare things that are right. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you who have escaped from the nations. They have no knowledge who carry the wood of their carved image and pray to a God that cannot save. Tell, bring forth your case. Yes, let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient time? Who has told it from that time? Have not I, the Lord? There is no other God besides me, a just God and a Savior. There is none besides me. What does he say? Look to me and be saved. All you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return that to me, every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall take an oath. He shall say, surely in the Lord, I have righteousness and strength. To him men shall come and all shall be ashamed who are incensed against him. In the Lord, all the descendants of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Now listen to verse 25. In the Lord, all the descendants of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. There's several themes that are taking place there in Isaiah 45 that we need to remember going forward. Um, You see them coming out of exile, coming out of captivity. You see them coming out with great riches. You see the enemies, their enemies, humbled, bowed in shame before them and before the Lord. All this is very critical with a connection to Revelation chapter 3, all right? Flip over to Isaiah 49 now, Isaiah 49. Keep all that in mind, what the Lord is saying, what the Lord is promising and look at Isaiah 49. Isaiah 49 opens with one of the servant songs of Isaiah. Those servant songs uh, referencing the suffering servant uh, we know to be the Lord Jesus Christ. And Isaiah opens, 49, opens with one of those servant songs, and it's an account of the promised servant of God who will deliver his people and who is going to restore Israel. He's going to restore Israel. But this is a prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 5. Now the Lord says, Who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, so that Israel is gathered to him. For I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, my God shall be my strength. Indeed, he says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. In these Old Testament prophecies of the restoration of Israel, you always have the restoration of Israel combined with the inclusion of the Gentiles. God is not only going to restore Israel, so to speak, God is going to include the salvation of the nations among them. It's going to become really important. Verse 22. Thus says the Lord God Behold, I will lift my hand in an oath to the nations, set up my standard for the peoples. They shall bring your sons in their arms, your daughters shall be carried on their soldiers' shoulders. Uh, Whose sons? The sons of Israel daughters of Israel, the kings shall be your foster fathers, their queens, your nursing mothers, they shall what? They shall bow down to you. They shall bow down to you with their faces to the earth, lick up the dust of your feet. That's a judgment, isn't it? That's shaming our enemies, shaming the Lord's enemies. They're going to come and bow down, lick up the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord, for they shall not be ashamed who wait for me. Incidentally, who is it who waits for him? Those who are trusting in Jesus Christ. We wait for the Lord, right? We wait on his return. Now this here, there, here, is the everlasting shame of those who reject the Lord for their foolish idols. Everlasting shame of those who reject the Lord's Messiah, the servant of, For foolish idols. There is the promise that no one who puts their trust in him will be ashamed. No one who puts their trust in his Messiah will be ashamed. He will prove this when he vindicates himself on his enemies in judgment. They will bow down to those whom he has delivered. The pagan nations will bow down before Israel, whom God has chosen to be his own. They will lick the dust of their feet. They will be ashamed. In other words, they'll be judged and they will know, they will know that Yahweh rules in the kingdoms of men. Connection. Do you see the connections? Here are the connections to Revelation 3. They will bow down, shamed in judgment before them. Connection to Revelation 3. One more, Isaiah chapter 60. If you take a look, if you're reading through the book of Isaiah... I encourage you to take uh, all of the all of these chapters. Uh, they are look, there's so many other chapters. They are laden down with uh, eschatological promises uh, and the work of God. And um, you'll see in reading through the Book of Isaiah these connections to what we're talking about in Revelation. It's very very important. This is just a small taste, if you will. Isaiah chapter sixty, and look at Isaiah sixty verse thirteen, verse thirteen. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you. The cypress, the pine, and the box tree together. This is again, them coming out with riches, coming out with wealth, to beautify the place of my sanctuary and I will make the place of my feet glorious. Also, verse 14, the sons of those who afflicted you shall come bowing to you. And all those who despised you shall fall prostrate at the soles of your feet. And they shall call you the city of the Lord, Zion of the Holy One of Israel. The city of the Lord is Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem. Verse 15, whereas you have been forsaken and hated so that no one went through you, God says, I will make you an eternal excellence. I have to ask here in thinking of that, is that eternal excellence going to be an ethnic Jewish nation set up in the city of Jerusalem? I don't think so, and we're going to get there, okay? He's talking about his people. His people, God's people, will be an eternal excellence, the joy of many generations. Verse 16, you shall drink the milk of the Gentiles and milk the breast of kings and You shall know, what is the end result of all this? The glory of God. You shall know that I, the Lord, am your savior and your redeemer, the mighty one of Jacob. It's not enough that his enemies will be judged and shamed, that they will bow down. They'll be bowed down down so that before their eyes, God will be magnified. God will be glorified. Uh, God will be seen to be the only true and living God. So we have the picture, don't we? Just those three passages from Isaiah, we're building a picture. God is going to restore his people from exile among the nations. He's going to restore his people from their exile. They're gonna come out of exile with great riches, plundering their captors. The, The riches or the wealth of the nations is going to come into Israel. Those who reject the Lord for their idolatry, what happens to those who reject the Lord, who reject the Lord's servant, who reject the Lord's Messiah, they're going to be ashamed, They're going to be ashamed, and part of their judgment, part of their shame, will be bowing down before God's people who will never be ashamed, who will never be ashamed. And they bow down before God's people who will never be ashamed so that they, those who are being judged, will know he is God. He is the Lord, okay? All of that so that we and they may know that he is God. There is no other. All who put their trust in him will glory in his salvation. Now, Who is the one who secures this exodus of God's people? When you read of this exodus in the Old Testament, you you read of Israel's restoration. Who is the one who secures that restoration? Who is the one who accomplishes that feat? None other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the only one who can. He's the only one who accomplishes this restoration. This gathering together, of God's elect out of the nations from the four corners of the earth the lord jesus christ is doing that through the gospel luke 4 jesus christ has come to proclaim liberty to the ca- the captives right he's reading out of the prophecy of isaiah he's reading out of isaiah and he says i've come to proclaim liberty to the captives luke 9 moses and elijah are with him on the mount of transfiguration Uh, And Moses and Elijah are speaking with him in Luke 9 on the mountain. They're speaking with him about his exodus. If you're reading a New King James there, I believe in ESV, the word that they translate that word uh, with is decease, his decease. The literal word in Greek is exodus. The Lord is speaking with Moses and Elijah on the mountain about this exodus that he must accomplish uh, at Jerusalem with his work at the cross. Jesus Christ is the one who is going to fulfill everything that God has prophesied in Isaiah 45, Isaiah 49, Isaiah 60. In fact, all of those prophecies in Isaiah. The Lord Jesus Christ is the one who's going to fulfill them. Now, if you have all that, if you've got all that, that's the context for our Lord's statement in Revelation chapter 3. Turn back there with me. That's our context, okay? Revelation chapter 3. I want you to listen to this now with that in mind. He says, verse 8, I know your works. I know your works, Unlike Sardis, whom the Lord describes as dead, whose works were not found perfect in the eyes of God, their works did not give evidence of a living faith. The Lord says of Philadelphia, I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door to the kingdom. No one can shut it, for you have little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. So the Lord, with the works in Philadelphia, the Lord did find their works perfect, so to speak, evidence of a living faith. And like the vindicating works of Abraham in James chapter 2, for example, uh, their works were evidence of their living faith. So what does the Lord then promise as the outcome of their faith in Jesus Christ? What does he promise? He promises them they'll not be ashamed. They'll not be ashamed. In fact, their enemies will be made their footstool. Their enemies, the enemies of the Lord, they are the ones who will be ashamed Those who reject the Christ will be ashamed, those who have put their hope in idols. Who is that? Verse 9. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan. These are those who are persecuting the church in Philadelphia. I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews but are not, they lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet. The word proskuneo means to bow down, to prostrate themselves. That word can sometimes be used of worship, but it can also be used of simply prostrating yourselves. We're going to look at both examples in a minute, but uh, think of it for now in terms of they're going to bow. They're going to bow down before your feet and for them to know that I have loved you. The enemies of the church in Philadelphia, are they say they are Jews? God says, they say they're Jews. They're not Jews. They lie. They belong to the synagogue of Satan. And I am going to pour out my judgment upon them. They are going to come in shame. They're going to bow down at your feet, prostrate themselves in shame, knowing that I have loved you. You see the context of what's going on here. Who are those of the synagogue of Satan? Well, they're those who say they are Jews. They're not Jews though, they lie. We've introduced this before. This is a very important part of our understanding of eschatology. Those of the synagogue of Satan are those who have rejected their Messiah. It is a synagogue of Satan because they have rejected Jesus Christ. If you have a so-called church without Jesus Christ, you're worshiping Satan. (laughs) You're not worshiping God. There is no worship of God without Jesus Christ, apart from Jesus Christ. It's through Jesus Christ that we worship God right? They are of a synagogue of Satan. They're the ones who are now persecuting God's people. They're persecuting the church at Philadelphia. They say they're Jews. They're not. They lie. These are ethnic Jews. And these are ethnic Jews attending synagogue. And why is it a lying statement? They say they're Jews. God says they're not. They lie. When they say they are Jews, what makes that a lying statement? Well, this is what makes it a lying statement. Romans 2, 28. He is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. He is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart. Those who are born again. Galatians 3, 7. Only those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham. Those who are not of faith are not the sons of Abraham. Romans 9, 6. They are not all Israel who are of Israel. The children of the promise are the children of God. So let me ask you, who is true Israel? Who is true Israel? Who are those who are delivered by God? Who are the people of God? Those who put their faith in God's Savior. Those who put their faith in God's Messiah, God's only Son. Those who with Abraham have a circumcised heart, those are the people of God. Those Those. People are true Israel. Do you see? These say they are Jews, they lie, synagogue of Satan. Who are true Israel then? Those who have the faith of Abraham. Not merely a physical descendant of Abraham, but a a spiritual descendant of Abraham. Not merely a Jew outwardly, but rather a Jew, a descendant of Abraham, inwardly. These are those who are the children of promise ethnic Jews and ethnic gentiles who put faith in Jesus Christ. You know how we don't ex- notice how we don't exclude one from the other, right? We don't say gentiles who put faith in Jesus Christ. We choose our words carefully with this. It's ethnic Jews, ethnic Jews certainly, and ethnic gentiles who put their faith in Jesus Christ who is the hinge on which all of this is built? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. What are you going to do with this one who says he is king of the Jews, right? What are you gonna do with him? He's the hinge on which everything hangs. The person of the Lord Jesus Christ is at the center of all of this. You cannot reject the Lord Jesus Christ and believe that you are a people of God This is God's Messiah, God's own son. So those in Revelation 3, think with me, who are attending synagogue every week, those who have rejected Jesus Christ and are now persecuting Christians, persecuting God's people, and incidentally, think with me, incidentally, those Jews are doing the same thing today. There's no difference today than in the first century. We're talking about the same kind of worship, the same kind of false religion, the same kind of people, the same kind of persecution going on. They say they are Jews, meaning they they're saying they are the true people of God. You realize that's what that means. They say they are Jews. They're the true people of God. And yet the Lord says, Revelation 3, 9, they are not. The one whom they reject says they are not. Do You see that? They are liars. And then the Lord so identifies them in their idolatry. Listen the Lord so identifies them in their idolatry with the pagan Gentile nations that he pronounces the same judgment against them. In fact, by making allusions to Isaiah, the Lord is saying, think with me, the Lord is saying that judgment that is going to be poured out upon pagan idolaters, that those idolaters will be shamed, They will come and they will bow down before you and lick the dust of your feet. The Lord, in his reference to Isaiah, is applying that judgment to the synagogue of Satan, to those who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Do you see that in Revelation 3? That same judgment now is against them. There's been a switch that is taking place. Now listen, they will be those who come and bow down in shame before the feet of his people. By the same measure, by the same measure, this precious church in Philadelphia, ethnic Jews and ethnic Gentiles who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, all those people who, like Abraham, are trusting in God's Messiah, even though some may not be physical descendants of Abraham, they are all certainly spiritual sons of Abraham through their faith in in Jesus Christ. They, the church at Philadelphia, are all Jews inwardly, all of them they have a circumcised heart, having been born again in Jesus Christ, they are the children of promise. They are the children of promise. And we're going to see this in a second. What does this tell us? Um, well, one thing in particular, God is no respecter of persons. God is no respecter of persons. God shows no partiality to your ancestry, your physical lineage, your religiosity. God is no respecter of persons. God honors those who put their faith in Christ. Those who love the son he loves. Those ethnic Jews who have rejected Jesus Christ here are no better than the pagan Gentiles, the pagan nations. They are included in the promise of judgment that will come upon those who dwell upon the earth. They're going to be included in that judgment. Now listen, turn with me to Matthew chapter 8. We've got further unpacking to do, further unpacking to do. Hang there with me. Matthew chapter 8. I want you to see this in context of some New Testament passages. Matthew chapter 8, verse 5. Now, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him. Was a centurion a Jew or a Gentile? Gentile right a centurion came to him pleading with him saying Lord my servant is lying at home paralyzed dreadfully tormented Jesus said to him I will come and heal him the centurion this Gentile answered the Lord in verse 8 and said Lord I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof but only speak a word and my servant will be healed that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but, verse 12, the sons of the kingdom, who are the sons of the kingdom? Jews. Will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Sons of the kingdom who will be cast out are the Jews who reject Jesus Christ. Who is it who will sit down with Abraham in the kingdom? The many who will come from east and west and believe. They believe in Jesus Christ. Those, who will be, those will be the ones who sit down in the kingdom with Abraham. Look at Matthew 21. Matthew 21. And look there at verse 33. Matthew 21, verse 33. So now the Lord says, hear another parable. Hear another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard, set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, built a tower. He leased it to vine dressers, and went into a far country. Now when vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. The vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, stoned another. And he sent other servants more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Then last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, they will surely respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said amongst themselves, This is the heir. their are envy, right? Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. They killed his son. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? Well, they said to him, He will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. Well, Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, verse 43, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. He's speaking to the Jews. Given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. A new creation nation, if you will. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. I think this can best be summed up in Galatians chapter four. And this will tie it together for us. Put a bow on it. Galatians chapter four. I want you to think through this passage with me. This is a critical passage. Galatians chapter four. And let's uh, wrap this up together, tie it all together with uh, Galatians chapter four, beginning in verse 21. Now, remember in in this letter to the churches at Galatia, in Galatia, Paul is writing largely to Gentile churches in Asia, Asia Minor. These are largely Gentile churches. These churches were being assaulted by the Jews assaulted by Jewish Judaizers. And the Judaizers in particular wanted to place Gentile Christians back under the law. So he begins in verse 21 then. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, there were those Christians in Galatian churches who were tempted to listen to the Judaizers, to listen to the Jews, and tempted to go back to or submit themselves, subject themselves back under the law. So he says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? Do you not hear? For it is written that Abraham had two sons. Who were Abraham's two sons? Ishmael and Isaac. That's right. That's right. Think with me now. The one son by a bondwoman. Who's that? Ishmael by his mother Hagar. The other by a free woman. That's Isaac by his mother Sarah. Okay? So remember, Abraham had two sons by two different women. The bondwoman was Hagar, her son was Ishmael. The free woman was Sarah, and her son was Isaac. But, verse 23, he who was of the bondwoman, Ishmael, was born according to the flesh. Original generation, uh, Abraham took matters into his own hands, so to speak, and went in and lay with his handmaiden, uh, Hagar. Right, According to the flesh, And he of the free woman, Isaac, was born through promise. God promised Abraham and Sarah they would have a son. Isaac was that son of promise. Okay. These two things, verse 24, are symbolic. These things are symbolic. For these women are, or they represent, the two covenants. These women represent two covenants one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. She, Hagar, gives birth to those who are in bondage to the law. So Hagar and Ishmael are Sinai. They represent the old covenant, the covenant at Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage. That's Hagar, that's Ishmael. Verse 25, for this Hagar is or represents Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is. And is in bondage with her children. Now, that's gonna strip the gears of Jews who are reading that 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 text when Paul wrote that. Uh, It's going to strip the gears of dispensationalists when they think through this passage carefully. This, we might say, this sounds backwards. That sounds entirely backwards. The covenant given by God to ethnic Jews at Mount Sinai corresponds to Hagar? corresponds to bondage, to slavery. Think with me. That's what Paul's stating here. The covenant given by God at Mount Sinai, the old covenant given to the Jews, this ethnic Jewish people, corresponds to Hagar, corresponds to bondage, corresponds to slavery, and corresponds to the Jerusalem, which now is, you can see Jesus Christ, you know, maybe talking about this on the Mount of Olives, pointing over to the city and saying, that's Hagar. That's Ishmael. That's bondage. Do you see? Corresponds to the Jerusalem, which now, and we could say also that it corresponds to the Jerusalem, which now is in our day. And that Jerusalem that now is, and those people are in bondage with her children. Whose children? Hagar's children. They're in bondage. Modern day Judaism corresponds to Hagar, Corresponds to Mount Sinai and is bondage. She is in slavery with her children. Who are her children? Ishmaelites. Ishmaelites are her children. Do you realize that Paul just called Jews who reject Jesus Christ, he just called them Ishmaelites? um, There's no other way to understand that text. (laughs) The text is clear. Paul just called Jews who reject Jesus Christ, he calls them Ishmaelites, verse 26. But rather, rather, the Jerusalem above, the heavenly Jerusalem, is free, which is the mother of us all. He's speaking to a Gentile church in Galatia. He's speaking to a largely Gentile church in Galatia, those who have put faith in Jesus Christ. And he says, the Jerusalem above, heavenly Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, is free and is the mother of us all. The mother of us all who put faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. In other words, we are the sons of Isaac. We are the sons of Sarah, the free woman. We are the sons of promise. Do you see the distinction between the two? Verse 27, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Now, we brethren, speaking to Gentile, largely Gentile churches in Galatia, verse 28, we brethren, those who have put their faith in Christ, members of the Lord's body, members of the church, we brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. We Gentiles, we the Lord's church, we are like Isaac. We are the children of promise. We are the true Israel. You see? The Israel that now is, the Jerusalem that now is, is like Ishmael, cast out with the bondwoman. But, verse 29, as he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was born according to the spirit. In other words, when Ishmael back then was persecuting Isaac, Paul says, even so it is now. Verse 30, nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. Think about what Paul is saying to a largely Gentile church in Galatia. He's saying that just like Ishmael persecuted Isaac back then, the Jews are persecuti- persecuting us today. Even so, it is now. And what does the scripture say back then of Hagar and Ishmael and Ishmaelites? What does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son because the son of the bondwoman, and again, that son corresponds to the Jerusalem that now is, corresponds to Jews, the Jews who have rejected their Messiah. Cast out the bondwoman, the the descendants of the bondwoman shall not be heirs with the sons of the free woman. So what does, that, what does that do? That effectively says there are not two peoples of God who are both going to inherit promises, who are both going to, you know, uh, separate destinies, so to speak, both in heaven, both inheriting promises, but two people of God with two destinies, you know, no, no. Verse 31, so then brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. We who put our faith in Christ, we are children of the free. What does that make us? That makes us descendants of Abraham by promise. Descendants of Sarah by promise. That's who we are. Who is true Israel? We are, the church. If ethnic Jews claim to be, they lie. That's Revelation 3.9. They say they are Jews, but are not. They lie. Who is true Israel? Who is it then, who inherit the promises? True Israel inherits the promises. These promises are made to Israel. Who is Israel? We are Israel. True Israel inherits the promises. Who are the children of the free woman? We are. Who are the children of the bond woman? The Jews. Critical, 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 critical to our understanding of eschatology. Who are the sons who inherit the church at Philadelphia? They inherit all those who share the faith of Abraham. They inherit, as Paul says, Abraham is the father of us all, speaking to the church, faith in Jesus Christ. All this is in keeping with the new covenant, the new covenant. To the house of Israel, he says, the nations shall know that I am the Lord when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. He does it so that those who reject him, who reject his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, he does it. He judges them, shames them. They come and bow down so that they may know that he is the Lord and there is no other. That the nations shall know. And who who are those among the nations? the Jerusalem that now is, those who are cast out with the bondwoman, they will know that I am the Lord when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. For I will take you, my people, God says, from among the nations. You realize that's a new covenant promise. I'm going to take you, my people, I'm gonna take you from among the nations. I will gather you out of all the countries that I send you. I will cleanse you, I will give you a new heart, I'll put my spirit within you, and you will obey me. So let's put this together uh, for a moment. When you see those prophecies of restoration made to Israel in the Old Testament, how are they fulfilled? How are they fulfilled? They are fulfilled to Israel in the New Testament. Who is Israel in the New Testament? We are. We are. Ethnic Jews and ethnic Gentiles who have trusted Christ alone for salvation, who have put their faith in Christ. They are fulfilled, all of those promises. When you read the Old Testament and you read promises of restoration, you receive promises of the eternal state and a new heavens and a new earth, when you see those promises, uh, Pastor Dale referenced one this morning in Sunday school when he talked about Ezekiel 37. When you see those promises, they are promises made to the people of God, Israel, and they are fulfilled to Israel When we get to the New Testament, who is Israel? Those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. Critical to our understanding, right? Critical to our understanding of eschatology. Is there any covenant love, is there any covenant love shown to those who have rejected Jesus Christ? Never. No. No covenant love to those who have rejected Jesus Christ. Everything hinges upon Jesus Christ. Those who have rejected Jesus Christ are described as worshiping at a synagogue of Satan. They are, as Paul would say, they are Ishmaelites. They are those who persecute God's people, just like the rest of the pagan nations that God will judge in his wrath and they will be put to shame. In fact, the persecution that they heap upon you is the same persecution that their father Ishmael heaped upon Isaac, the son of promise. And listen, listen, The purpose of shaming them in judgment, according to verse 9, by making them come and worship before the feet of the faithful in Philadelphia is so that they may know, God says in verse 9, that they may know that I have loved you. You see, that vindication of God's own judgment, vindication of God's own work, God's own redemptive plans and purposes, right? Through Jesus Christ, God's Messiah, They, so that they may know that I have loved you. Verse nine, indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. God exalts his people, doesn't he? His people who are in exile, his people who have suffered at the hands of his enemies. And that is not determined by ethnicity. It's not determined by some false notion of religion it is determined and distinguished by faith in God's own son the one whom he has sent to save sinners from their sin what will you do with Jesus Christ all depends on who you believe that he is incidentally again that word translated worship in verse 9 proskuneo they will worship before your feet again means to prostrate yourselves but that word can also uh, mean worship there is a sense there is a sense in which Um, provoked to jealousy. We're gonna gonna talk about this when we get to Romans chapter 11, and I look forward to that. It's gonna be uh, really excited about getting into that. We're gonna talk about how this is meant to provoke Israel, ethnic Jews, to jealousy. And frequently you'll see in scripture, ethnic Jews um, referred to as beloved for the sake of the father's not because of themselves or because they are somehow lovely in and of themselves, but because God had determined to set his love upon Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And because of God's love, covenant-keeping love, faithful love to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, there is a, a gospel hope that Israel will be saved, that you'll see the salvation of ethnic Jews, through the preaching of the gospel. And those Jews will see the one whom they have pierced and will mourn for him as one mourns for a lost son, a pierced son, right? Now, uh, in that, uh, what we'll see, and the way that Romans 11 states it, is that in this manner, all Israel will be saved. Who is Israel in the New Testament? We are the sons of promise, those who have put faith in Jesus Christ. So when the scriptures say that it's in this manner that all Israel will be saved, who is the Lord speaking about? All those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It's in this way, in the glorious, infinitely wise plan of God, that God, beginning by saving many from the nation to himself through faith in a coming Messiah, then by bringing in the Gentiles, his people, from the four corners of the earth, from all the countries, all the nations around the earth, bringing in his people through faith in Jesus Christ. At the end, having provoked them to jealousy, will also save uh, ethnic Jews who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And it's in this manner that all of his people— all the, the the nation, so to speak, all of Israel will be saved. It is a glorious plan. So 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 much so that at the end of Romans 11, Paul just erupts in worship. <laughs> and it's like I can't stand it anymore. God, you are awesome. You are awesome, and I just want to praise you. Right? Awesome indeed. We'll look at that when we get to Romans 11 on Sunday morning. I hope this has been helpful. When you get to then Revelation, and as we continue to work through the book, really important to understand who. Israel is. When God begins to mention types from the Old Testament, to draw a picture of what those types are intended, how those types are intended to be fulfilled, becomes very important for us to remember exactly what it is that we're talking about. And I pray this will help. Next week will help also. We'll come back and finish this text next week. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for our time together in your word. Thank you, Lord, for just how wondrous you are and how marvelous how wondrous uh you this your plan of redemption is lord and what you have done and how it magnifies your name and how it exalts our lord jesus christ and just lord we're in wonder wonder at who you are and what you've done thank you lord that we um, who have no inherent right to be We thank you that we are beneficiaries of such a glorious salvation. And we, Lord, our heart's commitment to you into eternity is to worship you and to praise you for all time, for all that you've done. May you be exalted. Uh, May our Lord Jesus Christ be praised. It's in his name we pray. Amen.